This last week, um, as I've been preparing for this particular teaching in Revelation chapter 12, I've had this uh, song swimming through my mind um, that's an old hymn, and uh, I couldn't figure out why it was there. It just kept resonating with me over and over again. I was humming it, and eventually the more I hummed it, the more I picked up on the words and realized, oh yeah, that's because it's got a really dark component to it. It it sings uh, in truth about the power of Satan. And, and, and declares that he is no longer a power or a threat. Then I realized, wow, that's an old Lutheran hymn. And so when I was in a staff meeting with Michael this week and talking to the staff, I said, you guys remember that song, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? And Michael's eyes lit up because he was raised in the Lutheran church, you know. And they, they sing that song before they can say mama and daddy when they're little kids. They know it so well. It's so familiar to him. And I said, I, I think we should play a stanza of that to remind us because what Martin Luther went through in the 1500s speaks through the lyrics of that song. Great hymns come out of people's personal experiences. And Martin Luther was under the assault, under the foot of Satan. He sought to attack and destroy Martin Luther. And there were ways he tried to kill him. And Martin could write this song, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. It's written in Old English, but we have a stanza up there, and Michael's got kind of an organ sound on the synthesizer. So he's going to help us remember what that song sounded like. Go for it. You're going to learn this morning in Revelation chapter 12 why Martin Luther wrote those words and what that one little word is that shall fail him. Let's look in uh, the Bible at Revelation chapter 12. I told you last week that the number one question that's asked of me most often by students is, if God is so good, why does he allow evil in this world? The number two question I'm asked most often is, what is the source of evil? How did it get here in the first place? If God created this perfect world, and he created the Garden of Eden to place mankind in, and each day throughout the six days, he said, it's good, then how in the world did sin get in? As a matter of fact, on the screen, Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So how did evil get in the garden in the first place? God's created perfection. What in the world is this satanic influence doing there? In order to understand the Antichrist, the beast, the one with the Mark 666, we have to understand the origins of evil. We have to know where it came from. Jesus was there in the beginning before creation, and this is what he specifically said. In Luke 10, 18, he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus was talking about a time before creation. Jesus in heaven saw the rebellion of Satan and the fall of Satan falling from heaven like lightning from his exalted position. Why did that happen? The most beautiful created angel ever, according to Scripture, according to Isaiah and according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he was the anointed cherub, the one who was elevated to the throne of God's position. He covered the throne, we're told in Scripture. He was that ornate. 
Because his ego overcame him, and he said, I will be as God. I will ascend to the mountain of the Most High. I will replace God. And with that rebellion, he took angels with him. Fallen angels. You're going to learn about that a little bit today. That war is ancient. That's why Jesus said, I was there when Satan fell. Before mankind was created. It's an ancient, ancient war. And it's a twofold war now. First, it was the mutiny against God, in which he led angels in a war against the holy angels. And now the second part of the war is the war against mankind to turn men away from God so that they will stiff-arm God and push him away. We're told according to Scripture that one-third of the holy angels of heaven rebelled with Satan, that they fought against the holy angels. What that war looked like, I'm not sure, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a description further on. The Bible teaches that Satan is powerful, he is to be taken literally, and he is a supernatural being, a real enemy. The other thing the Bible teaches is that we're in a war. Specifically, it says in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of darkness. You might be interested to know that United States citizens overall in a recent survey said 60% of United States citizens said that they do not believe in Satan as a real being, but merely a symbol of evil. Okay, I can accept that until you drill down into the numbers and find that 45% of born-again Christians say that Satan is a symbol of evil. He is not a real being. People are failing to study the Word of God and understand that Satan gets the victory when he makes himself a non-threat. He's removed himself from the equation to the degree that people believe he's no longer a threat, he doesn't exist And so he's won that stage of the victory. This is what C.S. Lewis said in a quote in a book that he was writing specifically about Satan. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Satan is pleased when we see him as a non-threat and when we see him, according to Scripture, as an angel of light. Paul wrote this specifically to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. He was talking about false teaching in the church and he looped this little sentence in, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He would like to be perceived as the good guy. You're going to find this morning that he is the enemy. Since the fall of man, since Adam and Eve dove headfirst into sin and took our entire race with them, the battle is now on planet earth. It was in heaven in times past. It's now on planet earth. So in Revelation chapter 12, here's what we're reminded. In order to fight, we have to recognize who the enemy is. We have to identify him and see him as the enemy, and then we can move in. Otherwise, we fall prey to his attacks, and we fail to recognize him. These couple verses we're going to look at here first, and we're only going to get through seven verses today because of the extent of the text. These first few verses take us way back before the time of creation, and they sweep forward. 
If you've ever been to Gettysburg before, you've seen that perhaps there's a diorama in the center of town that has artwork that projects uh, the battle at Gettysburg. This diorama is paintings on the wall, artist interpretation, images of what the battle at Gettysburg looked like. And in a sweeping image all the way around, this diorama showing the battle of Gettysburg is like Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 shows a diorama of Satan from his fall all the way to the beginning of creation, moving forward to the arrival of Jesus and ultimately his defeat. So we've got a building process here, a brick by brick sweeping picture in Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1 if you have your Bibles with you. And if you don't, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. So right away I see great sign in heaven, and I'm reminded there's that word again, megas, huge sign. So John looks and he sees this mega sign in heaven, and what does he see? It's a semion. The word sign is semion. Here's the definition for it. A symbol that points to a literal reality. It's a significant indication. So here's a, for instance, if I get in my car and I drive to Canada, and as I cross the border, I don't pay any attention because the signs are behind me, I do my business in Canada and turn around, and lo and behold, as I cross the border into Michigan, I see this big blue sign with white lettering that says, Welcome to Michigan. Is that sign itself Michigan? No, it's a representation. It's a semion. So that's what John is saying here. I see this great sign in heaven. It's a revealing factor of what's to come. Jesus used this word himself when he was talking about his return to earth. Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign, the semion of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So this sign of the woman is more than a woman. It's an indication of something very significant that's about to unfold. So John sees this dazzling image. A pregnant woman clothed with the sun under her clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Some suggest that what he's seeing here is the church. Well, that's backwards. The church doesn't give birth to Christ. Christ gave birth to the church. Others would say, well, that's the Virgin Mary. That's wrong also. What you're seeing here is an image of Israel. This is a picture of the nation of Israel, and I'll show you how to understand that. Israel is very unique in its brilliance and in its glory before God. Not because they're so great, but because God called them apart to himself and said, you will be a holy people before me. You will be hagias. I will set you apart and I will make a covenant with you. In Genesis chapter 12, when God made a covenant, the covenant never goes out of existence. He made a promise to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. And he said, the nation of Israel will not go out of existence. Let me show you this up on the screen. It's from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 35. This is God's promise regarding the nation of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for the light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, as often as the waves roar upon the seashore, as much as you can depend upon the sun rising in the east and setting on the west, the nation of Israel will not go out of existence. They are the only nation in the history of the world to go underground and then reappear again in 1948. No nation has ever done that before. Even though our world continues to take shots at them, God's word said they will not go out of existence. So it's no wonder that Satan has made them the focal point of all his attacks down through history, saying that if I can destroy them, I can make God into a liar because if Israel doesn't exist, God cannot fulfill his promises. So therefore, we find a constant attack by Satan against the nation of Israel. Let me show you how to connect this image, this Simeon, that John is seeing with the nation of Israel. Remember about a year ago when we started the Destiny series and I told you we're going to do Destiny of a Man, Destiny of a Nation, and Destiny of the World. The Destiny of a Man, we studied the life of Joseph. And in studying the life of Joseph, we saw that this young man had an image, a, a dream, in which he saw stars, moon, and sun. Let me take you back to that again. Genesis 37, verse 9. This is the dream that Joseph had in which he saw things into the future. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind because Jacob understood what Joseph was associating with was the sun is dad Jacob and the moon is mom Rachel and the stars, the 11 brothers. Add one more star to it for Joseph and you've got the 12 stars that you see in the crown here. The 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. The sun is Jacob who was known as Israel. So that's the picture how you put this together. The sun, Israel, Jacob the father, the moon, Rachel, the mother, standing on it, and the 11 stars, the crown. And specifically, she's wearing a type of crown that's given out as a crown of victory. It's called a Stephanos crown. This particular crown is only given to people who have made an achievement in the midst of a struggle. So they have moved forward as a nation making achievements, and in the midst of the struggle, ultimately, they're going to have victory. So they've been given a Stephanos crown. Now we see that she's in labor, and she cries out because she's in childbirth, and she's about to bear forward this individual child. It's a picture of the nation of Israel struggling throughout time, through all these different attacks that Satan has made, and bearing forth, finally giving forth this child, the Messiah, that's described for us. 
ever since God promised that there was going to be a redeemer, Satan has set his eyes on attacking Israel to destroy God's plan. If I take you all the way back to the time of the garden when God had Adam standing before him, he had Eve standing before him, and he had the serpent in front of him, sin had just been committed. The Garden of Eden has been defiled. Those three individuals received a reprimand and a condemnation from God. Specifically, Satan was told what his future would be. Let me show you on the screen Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Meaning the seed of the woman coming forth, the promised redeemer. When we say bruise, we think black and blue, got a little lump on my arm. That's not what God had in mind. The word that's used here is the word shuf. It's a Hebrew word. And this is what your God said to Satan. I will crush you. The one who's coming will break you. He will overwhelm you. So this one, Satan, hearing that, understood that God was about to send one to redeem mankind and that his doom was sure. That's why Martin Luther could write it the way that he did. God promised it will happen in the future. So let's jump forward into verse 3 because now enter the destroyer. Then another sign, another Simeon, appeared in heaven. And behold, there's that word again, a megas, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So we see another sign here, and this megas dragon steps onto the scene. An enormous red creature. Red in Scripture is always associated with death. And so John sees this image of this one who's murderous in his nature with his fierce power. That's why he called him a dragon. And he's got these seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. The seven heads speak of seven rulers and the seven crowns that they will wear. Satan has been allowed to rule over the earth ever since the fall of man, hasn't he? We found that Jesus last week called him the prince of this world. On your study notes this morning, you'll find that there's a listing of all the names of Satan on the backside of that listing of the study notes. All the different names he's been called throughout Scripture. He's been allowed to rule over planet earth as the one who's called the prince of the world. But we see that there's seven diadems, seven crowns on his head. What in the world are those seven diadems? We just talked about the seven Stephanos crowns. This is a diadem. A diadem is only given to someone who has royal power, power that's granted to them like a governor or a president, an authority figure. So these seven diadems on seven heads represent the seven world empires who have come against Israel and God's plan since Israel became a nation. Specifically, here's six of them. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome most recently. But that's only six. What's the seventh one? The kingdom 
under Antichrist. When Antichrist comes on the scene and gathers the nations to himself and builds a kingdom and moves against them, that's why you see the ten horns represented. Ten kingdoms that are raised up during the tribulation period of time. People make this particular passage really difficult, but there's a very simple explanation for it. I'm going to take you back to the book of Daniel. Daniel saw this very thing, and he gave us a description for what he saw. Up on the screen, Daniel 7.23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom, speaking of the kingdom of Antichrist, on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Doesn't it help when the Bible gives its own commentary? Ten kingdoms, ten horns. So it tells us specifically. And another will rise after them. This is the Antichrist. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. So the ten horns that you just saw in Revelation are the ten nations that the Antichrist brings up, gathers to himself, And eventually, you're going to find in Revelation 13, he's going to kill three of the kings and then be left with seven nations, a seven-nation empire. So here we see now that the stars of heaven were thrown to the ground. His tail swept through heaven. He took a third of the angels with him and caused this war to break apart, and they rebelled against God. I cannot in my mind possibly fathom how these created beings who were created higher than us, who dwelt in God's presence, thought they could overcome the God of the universe. What in the world were they thinking? I'm sure they didn't understand because they're not omniscient creatures. They don't know everything. They didn't understand the eternal consequences, but they rebelled against the Ancient of Days. And so as a result, we see the dragon standing in front of the woman waiting to devour her child. So here we see a picture of him as a murderer. Jesus called Satan a murderer. John 8, He was a murderer from the beginning because Jesus knew his nature. So Satan understood God's got this plan of redemption. He's going to send a Messiah through the Jewish people whom he has set aside to raise up to bring salvation to the entire world. And so Satan is waiting, waiting for Israel to bring forth this Messiah so that he can destroy him. Do you know that Satan wants to destroy you as well? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you name the name of Jesus, he wants you to be destroyed. He prowls around looking for you. This is what Scripture says, 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith. I've used this analogy for you before, but I'm going to remind you of it. Go to a zoo sometime and watch the lions in the cage. If they lock eyes with you, they never take their eyes off. They roar and they walk and they prowl and they never take their eye off the prey. They're constantly looking. 
seeking something to devour. That's a picture of this one known as Lucifer. There's a day coming when all of Israel will be saved, but in the meantime, they have to endure the attacks of Satan. He's constantly looking to devour them. They are the chosen people, and they brought forth the Messiah. So because of that, he becomes the focus of their attempt. He wants to make sure that he can exterminate them because then God can't bring about his plans. Think about this with me. First attempt, tried to exterminate the Jewish people as you learned through our study last year through the nation of Egypt. Egypt failed. He tried to exterminate them through Babylon. Babylon failed. He tried a third time to exterminate them through Rome. Rome failed. Three failures. And so he turned his attention from the nations to trying to exterminate the Lord Jesus Christ at his birth. Do you remember from the Christmas story? Satan waiting to destroy the child through King Herod. And the angel showed up and warned Joseph. Let me read this to you. This comes from Matthew chapter 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Satan working through Herod to destroy God's plan. You see him marching through the ages? He has a very good purpose. Not good holy, good focused. He's very focused, singular of vision, wanting to destroy God's plan. So move into verse 5 with me. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. She gave birth to a son, a male child. Who is this? It's Jesus. It's not hard to figure out, is it? A male child coming forth who is going to do what? Rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The ultimate destiny of the world that Jesus will rule over all the nations. But he had to complete his work for Sydney. That's why we see this last element here. He was caught up to God and to his throne. What you see there is the picture of the ascension. Remember I said this is a sweeping story, a diorama starts in the beginning, moving through. We're at the point now where Jesus is ascending to the Father. Specifically, Hebrews 1.3 speaks of this. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made, what? Purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there you see the ascension, Jesus coming to the throne next to God the Father. But we get this last part thrown in here as we wrap this up, that this woman fled into the wilderness to hide Specifically, Jesus talked about this 2,000 years ago, saying that there was going to come a time when Israel was going to be so pursued by the Antichrist that they would have to flee from Jerusalem and run into the wilderness to avoid being executed by him. Here's where it comes from, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. The exact location of where they're going to be hidden in the wilderness is not revealed to us in Scripture. Many Bible theologians believe it's somewhere around the Dead Sea. Some believe around the area of the River Jordan, the area that we know today called Petra, that they'll be preserved and protected and nourished. But do you notice the time frame again? 1,260 days, three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. So here we come into the last part, verse 7 and this war between the angels. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. So in this diorama, moving from before creation, through the attack of Satan on the nation of Israel, to the birth of the Messiah, to the ascension of Jesus, and now we're moving into future times during the tribulation when we see that there will be another war, a second conflict in heaven. Does your mind not have a hard time wrapping around that? Thinking that in heaven there can be a battle? I, I can't get that in my head, that paradise can contain a war. But that's what we're told in Scripture. It's simply beyond my comprehension, as well as how they fight. Because we think of this. They're eternal beings. They cannot be killed. How do they fight? What do they fight with? I came across this little quote from Henry Morris, who's a very esteemed theologian. He wrote a book called The Revelation Record. I think it's a brilliant description of what might take place. Look with me up on the screen as I read this for you. With what weapons and by what tactics this heavenly warfare will be waged is beyond our understanding. Angels cannot be injured or slain with earthly weapons, and such physical forces as we know about are not able to move spiritual beings. But these beings do operate in a physical universe, so there must exist powerful spiritual energies of which we can yet have only vague intimations, energies which can propel angelic bodies at superluminary velocities through the space and which can move mountains and change planetary orbits. It is with such energies and powers that this heavenly battle will be waged and the spectators in heaven, including John, will watch in awe. I read in Scripture in the Old Testament that the angel Gabriel carries a sword as well as the angel Michael. Is it a lightsaber? I have no idea. What kind of a sword do these guys carry? This is very impressive that they can't die, yet they fight with weapons. Michael and Lucifer know each other. They have faced each other before. They were created beings. They dwelt in heaven together they will go to battle together. And Satan's full fury will explode on planet Earth, you'll discover next week, when he is thrown down by Michael. 
And I want you to notice that the battle that takes place is not between God and Lucifer. It is between Michael and Lucifer. God sends his angels to do his work. Lucifer is not the counterpart to God. He is not the opposite of God. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. We don't need to fear this one because Scripture says they were not strong enough. They don't have the power to overcome God's forces. If you move forward three verses to verse 12, you'll see how they beat him. It says, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, the power of Jesus Christ. So the great dragon was thrown down. This word thrown down is specific to the Greek language, but we see it practiced all the time when we watch NBA basketball. If you've ever watched Shaquille O'Neal do a slam dunk, you have watched Ekbalo. Ekbalo is throwing down or slamming down. If you've watched a very large basketball player do a slam dunk so hard that he not only collapses the rim but shatters the glass on the backboard, you've seen Ekbalo. What you will see is Michael slamming down Satan to the ground. He will never rise again. He will not have access to God. He will not be able to accuse you any longer. He's a created being. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. And he's not omnipotent. So the focus of this passage is to help us remember we fight a war against a defeated foe if we name the name of Christ. That's what we're told to do. That's why I wanted you to see what Martin Luther understood 500 years ago. John understood 2,000 years ago. The church has forgotten today. Look with me again at the quotes from Martin Luther up on the screen. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's the word? The name of Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That includes Satan's knees as well. You are on the winning side. I've read the end of the book. You win. It's a great thing. So Satan's two greatest defeats... The cross and the empty tomb. That's what we celebrated this morning. Let's pray. Father, your church has gathered together today to celebrate and to learn and to praise. Children are being trained downstairs. Adults are in classes. We get to participate in communion. We sing songs to you. And we study your word for one purpose, so that we can know your nature and character better, so that we can walk more boldly in our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, as men and women go out of this room today, they're going to encounter attacks of Satan. It may seem minuscule, it may seem magnificent, but remind us, Father, we fight against a defeated foe if we name the name of Christ. We belong to you, and so we ask that you would go in advance of us. We especially lift up to you the Conovers as they go to Zambia. They're going into Satan's territory, and he does not want them to be successful, Father. So we ask 
that you would give them a special measure of your blessing. God, send these people out of here in the confidence knowing that they serve the risen King. We ask this in the name of the one whom we serve, Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. Have an excellent week.